Hello and welcome to episode 345 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carasino. And we are coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks. But uh, as we record tonight with uh, Buffalo Bills safety, Damar Hamlin still hospitalized in critical condition after going into cardiac arrest on the field in Cincinnati on Monday night. It really feels like there are so much more important things than sports in general and specifically the winning and losing of sports games. Absolutely. You no, know, I think this really puts into context uh, the stakes of what we talk about when we talk about sports and some of the like serious words that people use when talking about them it just peels back a little bit of the not even the language but the culture like the i think the language is whatever but the culture around it people being so serious the fighting in the stands the aggression etc cetera, etc cetera, and having a moment like this happen and giving some perspective about what it is that the players are actually playing for out on the field um i think I, I was ultimately, like, through a terrible situation, at the very least, mildly impressed. And it was one of those moments where you have no idea how people are going to react at large, right? And there's so many bad actors in the world. Like, you wouldn't be... You wouldn't need to take a great leap to feel very upset or sinister about how human beings were going to react in a situation, especially in the United States. I mean, we don't need to go into them, but I think we can think of some recent examples of cases where tragedies did result in that kind of sinister action. Uh, and I was overwhelmingly impressed with the response from people in the media, most people in the media, from the ESPN coverage, from people online, on Reddit, on Twitter. Obviously, there's speculating going on, but the, the primary focus of it was just everybody hopes he's okay. Yeah. You know, and it's like, even if you're speculating or something and the primary thing is just like, ultimately people are just searching for good news there. And I, I was for the most part impressed by having one of these moments where most everybody can rally together and feel the same thing in sports and understand. I saw very, very few dissenting perspectives about whether that game should be played yesterday from the online I mean, world and the response world. It, it was overwhelming while we were waiting to hear word from the NFL about the state of, the state of that game. And, and I think the other cool piece of it was really understanding like where the power lies here, right? Obviously, they're billionaires and it's a massive institution or whatever. But ultimately, this is a players and it's a coaches league. And I think seeing the ex-players, current players rally around Damar Hamlin uh, and fans of every team rallying around him and just again pulling for him to be okay i feel like that was the most overwhelming thing in a situation that we really haven't experienced in our lifetimes no certainly i mean you know it was interesting that people kept explaining that during their careers they had never experienced anything like this but for you know everyone who's watched football you know is it is a fan let alone be involved with it You've watched hundreds and hundreds of games and, you know, there have been obviously serious tragedies on the field, but nothing to nothing to this degree, nothing quite like this. It's, it's truly unprecedented in modern you know, NFL history. So most importantly is uh, we're hoping for and pulling for 
Damar Hamlin to recover and be better. This moment where people have rallied around before the take machine has started or whatever, all the inclinations, people who are trying to profit off of a bad situation or whatever has started. It's like, it's very nice to live in this moment for a second. I mean, I think the other thing that we've seen online is so many players talking about, look, this is a reminder that the players you're seeing out on the fields are human beings, that they're not actors in, you know, we can refer to leagues as a soap opera and things like that, but this is not, you know, these are not fictional characters that are suffering injuries or, you know, in this case, dealing with cardiac arrest. These are real people with real families who are going through it. And then also, obviously, the emotions that not only DeMar Hamlin's Buffalo Bills teammates experienced on that field, the Bengals and all the other players throughout the NFL. It's been a, a very emotional period, I think, for the entire league. But it's a it's a good reminder in the way that we talk about players, in the way that we talk about sports, that you always need to keep that empathy in mind, even in situations that don't rise to this level. Absolutely. So, I, I mean, I think that's that's part of why, you know, our our viewpoint on this podcast is so consistently pro player. So, I mean, I'm extrapolating too far here, but I do think it'd be nice if people understood this throughout all of life, right? Even of outside course. of sports that yeah. we just understood that the people around us and, uh, the entire community that we're a part of, that these are human beings. Right. And there's this, you know, I don't know. I fucking hear it all the time. Right. I'm going to a different perspective, but you hear this conversation all the time where it's like, I can't even go to Seattle anymore or whatever. And it's like, what are you saying right now? Right. And it's like, are, have you been around a person that made you feel uncomfortable and trying to understand like this is a unhoused person in the city of Seattle is a human being, right? And I always think about it from the perspective of I, what are the steps that could lead for me to be there or for somebody that I know to be there? And I feel like that's something that I'm thinking about constantly, right? And it's like, it's, I'm not thinking of it as like, here's me, this like line or whatever. It's like, here's me, here's here's another person or whatever. It's like, this could be any of us because we're all human beings and things can happen in our life or whatever. And if, if something can happen to one person in the world, to Damar Hamlin, to anybody else, it could happen to you and your loved ones. And we should treat everybody like that. Yeah. I mean, look, whatever code of ethics exists in human history, the ability to view things from someone else's perspective and understand how they feel and take that into acknowledgement has always been a core part of that. So it's a reminder that we, we shouldn't need, but it, it certainly sadly is one that we do need. So, I mean, I, I would say that it's been, you know, kind of tough to focus on the other sports that continue throughout this week. And uh, it, it was an interesting change in perspective uh, to, to sort of drift into coach's corner for a second to to be at your your children's practices this evening, helping assistant coach a little bit and seeing, you know, the kids out there just enjoying playing basketball and get back to that's really what this is all about. These, you know, it's such a big industry, professional sports, even college sports is an enormous, massive industry at this point. But really what it's about is, you know, everyone starting out having fun playing these sports as a kid. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the number of things. That's why we do this, right? Like the money all comes secondary. Most kids are not. The money exists because of that. The money exists because it's fun, 
right? And we talk about this sometimes that like the, the things that thread these institutions together, there's no fucking government mandate for an NBA association, right? Or an NFL, right? If it didn't happen, if people weren't interested in it, they didn't love playing the sport and watching the sport. They don't need to exist. Right. And ultimately like having people want to play sports it's because they're fun. They're fun to watch. They're fun to be a part of. It's fun to see that kind of emotion. You don't feel that in almost any other aspect of life, right? To have that kind of competition with another person and to feel that kind of emotion that comes with playing sports. That's why like the kids for that I coach, right? There's not that many situations that they're going into and I'm like, okay, let's scrimmage. Like I think about coaches who are anti-scrimmage and I'm just like... First off, with I've talked to you about this with basketball. Like the number one way to learn how to play basketball is to play basketball. But like number two, we're just having fun here, right? Like that's kind of it. Part Ultimately, part of my these job. Kids are probably not going pro. Exactly. Like even if I was the best fifth, sixth grade boys basketball coach on the face of the earth, like the chances of me taking this group of kids and turning them into players who could be profiting from the sport of basketball is not going to happen. Or even getting an education from it in that case. Exactly. I always think of that with, with Luca with baseball and it's like, like we're like, ugh, he's, he does, he's not like good at positioning for the cutoff or first base or whatever. And I'm always like, when he's done playing baseball, like what is he going to be left with? The most important thing he's going to be left with is having fun with a bunch of kids. Right. It's I mean, not like teamwork, sacrifice, these sorts of virtues that we think athletic competition or whatever. Like there's other things, but ultimately he's going to be like 23 years old and be really fucking good at positioning for cutoff or first base. <laughs> Which at no point is that something that you need in your a, life. A translatable skill. <laughs> right? Uh, so it has to be fun. And that's why we play sports. It's why we pay attention to sports. It's why we care about athletes. And we care about athletes as human beings. Again, it's in the same way. Like It would be very easy to sort of remove ourselves from it. But it's fun to see. You're, you're exposed to different types of perspectives and personalities or whatever. And... Uh, that's why engaging in sport. It's why we do the stupid podcast, right? Yeah. So now which part of it is fun for the kids about you participating in practices and scrimmages? I will say I've participated I, very little this year. I actually think it is probably pretty fun for kids too, though, to play against an adult. We were doing a fast break drill and the kids were just doing terrible. Um, <laughs> that's a skill that maybe they're going to need <laughs> when they're older in life. <laughs> Angles to the hoop and uh, teamwork. But I, I really, really thought I was like, I was like, me and Al need to show these kids how to run a fast break. I thought you were going to say it at some point there. I, I, was, I was just waiting. I was, I was ready. I wish that we would have done what we did after practice, which is run. It was a two on one fast break, right? And the amount of layups. I think we got one layup after fifty times of trying it or whatever. You and I did it. First play, I come down. Nobody. Luca against Luca doesn't even defend me, and I get a wide open layup. <laughs> And I was like, okay, maybe out I could have done this. <laughs> there, there was also one play where it was just like a kind of a perfectly timed shovel pass across the lane for a layup. I, I blew some of the layups later on when we were trying it. So we were not, we, we are not perfect at this game, certainly. At least we were able to get layups I need against the, children. I need the layup practice that the kids need as well. Uh. <sighs> so, I mean, it was good to have that kind of joy from sports back in our lives, even if it uh, was tough to find right now. Should we get into our roundup? 
Sure. All right, a quick uh, NBA Seattle update sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. Gary Payton II was back on the court Monday night making his Portland Trailblazers debut after off-season surgery to repair a core muscle injury. Uh, this was something that wasn't expected to sideline him much into the season. It's been you know, now uh, nearly two months, but uh, glad that, that GP2 could finally get out there, made an impact right away as they beat the Detroit Pistons. Uh, Chauncey Billups talked post game about his hustle, and uh, Blazers kind of needed him because they've lost Justice Winslow, who was playing a pretty similar role to a grade two, two ankle sprain. He's going to be out at least you know a, another week here, so uh, his his return well timed to go with their young second unit at this point. All right, Kraken news. Some big news on. On Monday, as the NHL announced that the Kraken will host the 2024 Winter Classic on New Year's Day at T-Mobile Park facing the Vegas Golden Knights. This has sort of become the signature NHL game of the regular season. So a big deal for the Kraken to get to host this for the first time in their third year of existence. It'll be interesting. I mean, uh, obviously the turnout will be great at T-Mobile Park, uh, a big Seven months, six, seven months here coming for T-Mobile Park, which will have the All-Star game next year in MLB, followed by this winter showcase. And another sign of the NHL continuing to uh, try to make this crack in Vegas Golden Knights rivalry happen after they played their first franchise game in Las Vegas. So that's New Year's Day. twenty. I wasn't paying any attention when you were talking. Yes. Uh, that's New Year's Day 2024. Yes. Wow. Yeah. That's, I mean, they're trying to make, they know the Kraken have become like, a signature NHL franchise pretty quickly here. Yeah, I mean, definitely trying to capitalize on the immediate popularity of the the franchise and you know the the excitement about them. So I I boldly predicted in our our uh, 2022 recap that the the NHL entry draft was coming to Seattle. That still may be the case, but it looks like I may have gotten the big event coming to Seattle wrong for 2000 at least announced in 2023. Uh, Kraken on the ice suffered a 3-2 loss Wednesday to Calgary in their return from the holiday break, surrendering a season-high 45 shots in that one, then were blown out 7-2 by Edmonton on Friday with Philip Grubauer getting pulled from the net after surrendering surrendering <coughs> three goals in the first four minutes. But the Kraken got back on track on New Year's Day with a 4-1 win over the Islanders, capped by a Brandon Tanev empty netter, and then followed that up starting their road trip Tuesday with a 5-2 win in a rematch with the Oilers, getting a goal and two assists from Jaden Schwartz, a goal and assist from Matty Beneers. Those two wins put the Kraken back into the third and final automatic playoff spot in the Pacific Division as we near midseason. Uh, the Edmonton game began a season-long seven-game road trip for the Kraken split between the Canada and the U.S. They'll stay north of the border this week to face Toronto, Ottawa, and Montreal. Uh, a bit of Sounders offseason news. The Sounders added Brazilian forward Bear via trade with NYCFC in exchange for 400000 in general allocation money with an additional 150000 general allocation money contingent on, quote, performance metrics. Uh, Abear scored 24 goals in four seasons with NYCFC, highlighted by 15 in his debut season 2019. Subsequently suffered an ACL tear that sidelined him much of both 2020-2021. Returned as a reserve during NYCFC's run to MLS Cup victory in 2021 over the Portland Timbers. 
He started nine of his 29 matches last season, netting eight goals, and figures to slot in his depth behind Raul Ruiz Diaz with the presumed departure of free agent Will Bruin. So Sanders will have Ruiz Diaz, Hebert, and Freddie Montero in uh, among the forward group next year. Uh, also some potential Sounders news. Nico Moreno reported in Sounder on Hart confirmed that Christian Roldan is nearing a new five-year contract to stay with the Sounders. Per Moreno, Roldan had two offers on the table from teams outside MLS. So some international interest in Roldan is that, uh, you know, he's been able to show his wares both in MLS as a member of the U.S. MNT, but uh, will be staying in the with the only organization he's ever played for. Yeah, I, I mean, we don't we don't know what outside of the MLS is. There's a a lot of leagues outside of MLS, but yes, I would assume that there's interest in Europe. Maybe not Europe, but uh, certainly with his roots in in Latin America, you could see that as a possibility. I mean, he's somebody but, who's playing for the U.S. Men's National Team. Like, I mean, maybe, yeah, you I think mean, he could. It's play? usually a step down to go to other leagues <laughs> in North America that are not Liga MX. But that's what I'm saying is, you don't think you could play in? I don't know. I mean. Asia is all I don't I don't know what the status is of international players in the Asian leagues at this point, but that's another possibility, I guess. I just and certainly I, there's a wide variety of leagues in Europe. So that Europe yeah. is a pretty huge fucking place. It is. I I would be very surprised if Christian Oldan was not a competitive player in some of the teams in the Serie A or the French League One or whatever. Plausibly, yeah. Knew who there's constant rumors about him going to League One in France. So we'll see if anything ever comes of that. Uh, one quick Seattle Storm update. Congrats to former Storm guard Brian January, who was named an assistant coach to Stephanie White with the Connecticut Sun, the team she played two seasons for, before spending her final WNBA campaign back in her native Washington before retiring at season's end. Although she is still playing overseas before beginning that uh, job with the Connecticut Sun this summer. UW women's basketball uh, open Pac-12 in er- play in earnest last week with a pair of losses at home to the Mountain <laughs> Schools. It was 64-56 on Friday against Colorado, and then 61-53 lost Sunday to number 11, and now up to number 8 in the polls, Utah. Uh, Buffalo's had four players in double figures, led by 14 points, eight boards from UW transfer Quay Miller. Huskies actually led the undefeated Utes heading to the fourth quarter, but were outscored 24-15 in the final period, despite 17 points from Lauren Schwartz, and a double-double of 14 points and 10 boards from Delia Daniels, who also added four assists and three blocks in a strong all-around performance. Uh, they will very early in the Pac-12 schedule wrap up the Apple Cup series by visiting Pullman on Sunday, having beat the Cougars 82-66 at home last month. Uh, WSU, which also, of course, played the Mountain Schools last week, has begun Pac-12 play 0-3. UW men's basketball, likewise, beginning Pac-12 play in earnest last week, and uh, a, a tough weekend at home for the Huskies, who on Friday night led USC 58-55 midway through the second half only to be outscored 25-9 the rest of the way, and it's an 80-67 to loss. 16 of those 25 points came from USC's Boogie Ellis, who finished with 27, one shy of the career high he set against Auburn last month. The Huskies got 22 points on 6 of 21 shooting from Keon Brooks Jr., 18 from freshman Keon Menefield, who's got the start in place of Jamal Bay, uh, snapping a 63-game start streak for Jamal Bay, which dated back more than two full years. 
Uh, Noah Williams also returned in that one. He played a more prominent role on Sunday, but the Huskies were outclassed at home after halftime for the second time in 10 days against a ranked team. This time, number 11 AP, number 8 coaches, UCLA, which led by nine at the break, but never trailed by single digits after scoring the first basket of the second half of what was eventually a 25-point loss, 74-49 to UCLA. Braxton Mew was terrific in this one with 20 points on 9 of 10 shooting, 7 boards, 3 blocks, but no other Husky reached double figures. The Bruins held Keon Brooks Jr. to 6 points on 1 of 7 shooting. And uh, Williams got the start in this one because the Huskies played without P.J. Fuller the second, who uh, was dealing with an illness. And then, uh, so Williams, his first start since suffering a knee injury in the season opener. Menafield then left the game for good early in the second half. Have not seen an update yet on his status for this weekend as the Huskies head to the desert to take on number five AP, number four coaches pull Arizona on Thursday. As the schedule gets no friendlier at this point. Uh, a year after winning the Pac-12 in Tommy Lloyd's first season at the helm, Arizona 13-1 and with the lone loss coming at Utah in their Pac-12 opener last month. They've done that despite losing two players to the NBA draft in Benedict Matherin and Christian Coloco. The Wildcats won the Maui Invitational against what seemed like a downfield. None of those opponents that they've beat currently are ranked. But they also beat Indiana and Las Vegas and top 10 foe Tennessee to highlight non-conference play and are coming off a 69-60 win at Arizona State on New Year's Eve. Arizona tops in the nation in adjusted offensive efficiency per Ken Palm, driven by 62% two-point shooting. Umar Balo has replaced Coloco in the starting lineup and teamed with holdover Azulis Tubelis is the nation's toughest front court to stop. Tubelis, number seven in the Ken Palm KPOY rankings, hitting 62% of his twos, while Balo is at 72% on a slightly lower usage rate. And they get plenty of floor spacing from Kirk Creesa and Courtney Ramey, both averaging at least two three-pointers per game on 40% shooting. So Tommy Lloyd, again, has Arizona just rolling. Uh, ASU, who the Huskies will play on Sunday uh, during the Seahawks game, off to a great start at 11-1 despite a shocking loss to, at Texas Southern as part of the Pac-12 SWAC Legacy Series. They beat Michigan in Brooklyn, Stanford and Colorado in their opening week of Pac-12 play, and Creighton in Las Vegas, but then lost to San Francisco by 27 in their last non-conference game to revive the angst in Tempe about Bobby Hurley's coaching and fell to Arizona in that Pac-12, first full week of Pac-12 play last week. Still a solid number 58 in Ken Palm, largely thanks to number 25 adjusted defensive efficiency. They're allowing just 41% two-point shooting with seven-foot Nevada transfer Warren Washington blocking nearly 10% of opponent attempts inside the arc. Not great news for a Husky team that struggles with outside shooting. So this is looking like a 1-5 start to Pac-12 play. Very much so. So the Ken Palm projections, they are down still still at 7-13 for Pac-12 play, but uh, already, already trending downwards after last weekend's home sweep. As we talked about, that was the most likely outcome, but there was a decent chance of the Huskies getting a split. And they did. And also lost badly to use. <laughs> so and they didn't. And then we'll we'll see what happens with the Metafield injury and what his status is going forward. Is there a trend? College football, there's like this huge trend. Obviously, I mean, UW being a significant part of it. New coaches coming in, bringing in new talent through the transfer portal very quickly, transforming programs very very quickly. 
I mean, that's what Tommy Lloyd did last year. There wasn't a it's ton Arizona, of, though. It, like, he didn't yeah. transform the Arizona program. But, like, okay, Lincoln Riley was, he took over USC. It wasn't, it wasn't taking Tulane to the but he, Cotton Bowl. I mean, sure. But he brought in a number of new players. Yes, he was which, already the coach of Oklahoma. Um, I'm trying to think of, of examples of that. I think it usually takes a little more time for coaches to get established. Maybe just because, like, yes, Lincoln Riley was the coach of Oklahoma. So in that kind of coaching change hasn't really happened at the college level, at the men's college level recently that I can think of. But even Kalen DeBoer, right? Like, I mean, I think that's more similar to what happened with Arizona, where it was kind of better using the existing talent and, you know, sprinkle in the right transfer here. So Omar Balo followed Tommy Lloyd. He was at Gonzaga, I believe, his first year. I love that. And then transferred to Arizona. And yeah, Gonzaga, Gonzaga could use him right now next to or behind Drew Timmy. They're, they're not the same team that they have been the last couple of years, as we've talked about. But uh, that, that also, like, he just inherited Benedict Matherin, who turned into a top 10 pick. Kreisov was, I believe, entered his name in the transfer portal after Tommy Lloyd arrived and then ended up not transferring, if I recall correctly. Who was it? The coach just, that we were following last year Todd Golden, Golden who okay. was at USF. Todd Monken was the coordinator who we wanted the Huskies to hire, right? When the Huskies hired John Donovan, if I recall correctly. He was among the, I mean, Kellen Moore was the coordinator we wanted them to hire. That well, that turned out not to be realistic, as it turned out. Uh, Todd Monken is in, was in a bowl game recently that I watched, wasn't he? Where is he the offensive coordinator now? One of the teams that's in the playoff? I think it It was definitely a, definitely a bowl I watched recently. He's the offensive coordinator of Georgia. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I watched them. Which obviously is a better job than UW offensive coordinator. <laughs> yes, did he? But even did he get it that off season? Twenty twenty. Uh, that would be yes, that off season. So, I guess that wasn't an option. But anyways, I, it's not the same. I mean, obviously, transfers are having huge impact in college basketball, but it's not necessarily that same sort of new coach comes in you know, add several transfers, transforms the team overnight necessarily. Is high school recruiting more important in college basketball than it is in college football? Uh, I mean, college, the, the big difference is, you know, true freshmen are more likely to make an impact yes. in college basketball than they are in college football. So, and then you know that they're going to leave. So it's not exactly like the, well, just because I signed this player, it doesn't mean that their best days are going to come for me. That's still the case with, you know, lesser recruits certainly, but the five stars, you know you're getting them. You're getting them for one year. But that's not generally the formula for success. It's, you know, maybe you have one or two of those guys, and then it's more experienced players. So. I always think about the line of, like, what what is a better way? This is unrelated. But what is a better way to get to the best job? And there's, like, like maybe... I'm going to say five offensive defensive coordinator jobs throughout the country that are better jobs than head coaches at some places, right? You'd rather be the defensive coordinator at Georgia than be the head coach at Rutgers probably or something like that. Still a big 10 job, but your chance of moving to, of being successful at, I'm just using Rutgers so if as a random example. If you're Brent Venables and you're the defensive coordinator at Clemson, you can wait to till the Oklahoma job. I mean, Dan Clemson. Lanning is one. Yeah. Right, like Todd Monken, by taking the offensive coordinator job at Georgia, it is a better job than it is being the head coach at 
I mean, he was the head coach at Southern Miss, obviously. But like, well, hopefully Ryan Grubb continues to think that being the offensive coordinator at UW is better than a lot of head coaching jobs. I, it's UW, higher paying than some UW head coaching jobs. not that. Pro- he's I, I not know. going to become head coach of Notre Dame or something. Yes, because he's the offensive coordinator at UW. Whereas some coaches can do that. But he could. I mean, we saw this with Kenny Dillingham in the Pac-12. He goes from offensive coordinator of Oregon to head coach at Arizona State. So I think that's probably the path. But it's that is a more difficult path to getting to. If you consider there's this tier of the top absolute jobs in the country, right? Yeah. I think with Oregon I think being one that, of them. Yeah. And I think that's the Arizona State is like the next tier down of jobs. And it's difficult if you're trying to go that route to go from small college football head coach to one of those programs because you have to have it's hard to be successful at Arizona State I guess is what I'm saying hmm. it's easy we'll to be successful at Oregon and it's hard to be successful at Arizona State it's easy yes yes I, I would probably agree with that so but the standards for what success are are a little different <clears throat> at those programs that's fine but like to 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 get to the next job the thing that Keelan DeBoer is doing is actually one of not the hardest UW is a tier higher than Arizona State yes UW can be a transition job. I think head coach at UW is a better job than offensive coordinator than at Georgia. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I mean, because you you can be successful at UW. A lot of people have. Chris Peterson, like, he wasn't going to go to a lot of schools, but if he would have wanted, if he was had his dead set on being the head coach of Notre Dame or LSU or whatever, I think Chris Peterson could have gotten there from UW. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Sark went to USC. We'll talk about him in a second. <laughs> we will talk about him in a second. Uh, because the Huskies defeated uh, Coach Sark and his cowboy, cowboy hat and the Texas Longhorns in the Alamo Bowl 27-20 to last Thursday, reaching 11 wins for just the fifth time in program history following the 1984, 1991, 2000, and 2016 seasons with Chris Peterson obviously leading the most recent of those, a Rick Neuheisel team and two Don James teams. So heady company for Kalen DeBoer to join in his first year as UW head coach. Have you still still not seen this footage of Coach Sark yelling at the like assistant holding him back on the sideline? I have not. I'm done. I am absolutely done with Coach Sark forever. That is any time that there is any, there will never be anything positive uttered about Steve Sarkeesian on this podcast from me ever again. It is number one despicable behavior is losing it. I mean, he looks like it is unhinged. I'm shocked that you haven't seen this footage, but to me, seeing a person yelling at somebody just doing their job like that, right? I mean, people yelling at their own football players or whatever for not like playing well is also that, but this is just a dude like from TV being like, you have to wait. There's a thing going on in the field. And then Sark screaming at him, absolutely done. It's the same as like screaming at like a waiter or whatever. And I'm like, in any positive thing I've ever said about Coach Steve Sarkeesian is done done forever at this point. I will never speak a positive word about him again. I agree that that particular behavior is, you know, unacceptable and and can't be supported or, or condoned. But I, one of the things I believe in strongly is that sample size matters when it comes to character because anyone can, you know, have a bad moment 
in one incident. It's what you do over a lifetime of those situations that defines your character. So I'm not going to write Steve Sarkeesian off because of that one moment. Whatever. That's fine. I mean, it, it was not a moment. First off, we don't have evidence for any other situation of Steve Sarkeesian acting positively, right? But it's something where, like, you saw it and you're like, this person doesn't have basic human decency. This person is a college football coach, right? At the in in derogatively college football coach, derogatively. That's who Steve Sarkeesian is. And it was like just this the privilege that you could feel that comes from that, that you're like the most important person in the fucking state of Texas. Just like, fuck you, dude. Fuck you. To act like that to a person. And to have cameras, right? It wasn't... It was just the camera caught it or whatever. And that for him to be doing something like that, it was like, this is, in my opinion, it is despicable behavior. It's worse than what Jimmy Lake did, right? It is worse than pushing one of your players. Jimmy Lake was just... He, he was frustrated in the moment with a play or whatever. Like, I get it. Like, the Jimmy Lake push wasn't necessarily that violent or whatever. This was an unhinged outburst. And to me, Steve Sarkeesian is, that's, our relationship is over. Okay. <clears throat> well, the football game that was played here, it was kind of an unhusky game, I would say. The uh, UW's 5.2 yards per pass play, the lowest this season. And while the defense certainly played well, the 6.5 yards per play allowed was the fourth highest this season ahead of the loss to UCLA and their high-scoring wins over Oregon and Arizona. Huskies won this one primarily with volume of plays, running 83-65 to for Texas. Uh, between third and fourth down, UW converted 13 of 20 opportunities to stay on the field as compared to 8 of 15 for the Longhorns. And that was really, I think, the deciding difference in this game. Special teams also a kind of a surprising thing that favored the Huskies in this one with Edifuan Yulafoshio blocking a punt after Texas's first possession to set up their opening score. Uh, prior to a Texas onside kick in the late stages of this one, the average UW drive started nearly five yards better than the average Longhorns drive. Well, and I think the defense is something that you, know, you talk about it being an uncharacteristic game. We kind of called it going into this one. Oh, I feel very good about our analysis of this game. That it, It's interesting to have a conversation. I always think back to whatever Super Bowl it was. We watched it at John Mozika's house in Mercer Island, and you had just learned what Football Outsiders was, oh, yeah. and I had no idea. And you were like, here are all the things we should be watching for. It was uh, the Patriots-Panthers Super Bowl, I believe. And it was just like... That was I a was thing, like, right? Uh, definitely was a thing. I'm pretty sure it was that one. Yeah. Because I remember where, where I watched most of the other ones. Uh, but the... Like having having gone through that conversation and being like, oh, UW is not going to be able to hit deep passes in this game, and it was a little bit of like, and then they really tried to make the deep pass. Happen. Yeah, it was like, did anybody tell Ryan Grubb this? And I feel like it was almost intentional to be like, this is going to be hard for us to do, so we're going to push it. And maybe it worked to a certain extent. Maybe there was a bit of football guy, like. We are stretching that defense, even though these plays aren't hitting. I, they are. I don't like the derogatory way you said football guy in that context. Look, I think that sometimes coaches over-index on constraint plays, as they like to call them. But there is value in game theory. Like if Texas hasn't been te is tested, if if your if teams won't throw deep on Texas and you do throw it deep on Texas, that is going to create some opportunities underneath. I mean, I I think it 
definitely did in this game. Also, UW's just been really fucking good underneath all season. They've been good at both, right? Like, they've been good at intermediate passing and short passing and long passing. They've just been a really good offense. <laughs> that does seem... Don't tell QBR. Don't tell QBR. Look, it's not like they have <laughs> Penix rated 100th in the country. QB... QB... <laughs> I don't think he had a higher QBR in this game than Quinn Ewers. Really? I don't think so. Wow, because Quinn Ewers is hashtag bad. He threw for 367 yards. It, it, it was, was a it career was a high. Very bad, 367 <laughs> yards. I was just like, this is not a good quarterback. I mean, hopefully that was an indication that UW's defense, healthy after a long season, I mean, had had improved to a Quinn degree. Quinn Ewers missed some passes, made some bad decisions. He had drops in the game. UW's defense played a much better game. Tackled Xavier Warren so much more soundly oh, than that they was have a ever huge tackled. Note, hugely noticeable and I do difference. think that the UW coaches heading into it wanted to highlight that this was basically the first time they had the entire defense healthy and ready to go. And if this was the defense that we saw all season, we would be playing in the college football playoff right now. Yeah. We I mean, would be playing to this moment. Right? And I just, we saw USC on New Year's Day observed um, and we saw Utah on New Year's Day observed. Utah not playing with a full complement of players. They they did have some multiple high-profile opt-outs, which is an interesting contrast to Utah playing in the <laughs> yeah. Alamo Bowl. Granted, Utah played in the Rose Bowl last year. It had been three years since Utah played a bowl Unfinished game. That was business. a factor. We'll uh, talk about that in a second. Utah is the best team in the Pac-12, period, excluding nobody. UW this season was the best. They'll probably be ranked the highest at the end of the year, I assume. They will likely be ranked the highest, yes. They have the best record in the Pac-12. The Utah and USC also had 11 wins, but they needed 14 games to get there. They were who we thought they were, who I told you they were literally after week one. This is the best team in the Pac-12. This is the best UW team that we have seen, including 2016. This is a better all-around football team. And if you put that team into one of those... I wouldn't use the phrase all-around football team. If you want to say overall football team. But the, uh, Al- there was no team quite like Alabama in, in the 2016 Peach Bowl that there was in this year's college football playoff. Nobody was that dominant. But, I mean, we thought Georgia was coming in. Georgia was I, not I in told the you, I looked at Georgia's schedule, though, and it was like a four-point win against Missouri. Georgia, Georgia last year was more dominant than Georgia this year. For sure. But I think UW either wins or is competitive against any of those four teams in the college football playoff. This, this would be the only UW team that in the history of the college football playoff and the University of Washington, I would have said they could actually go in there and win this game. That's probably true. And maybe if they would have played one of the, I don't even remember what the other matchup was. I think it was Ohio State. Or it was Kyler, Oklahoma against... Well, it was the wasn't it the Tua national championship game, right? Jalen Hurts started against UW, and then Tua came in in the in the championship game, which was against Clemson, wasn't it? Was that Clemson? Was that Clemson, Oklahoma? I think it was Clemson, Oklahoma. I'm pretty sure Kyler started for. I mean, look, you can just safely assume that any past college football playoff included Clemson. Uh, I I don't know about the other teams in that game, but obviously that UW team probably would have fared better against the other teams that weren't Alabama, but. This is the team that going into this game, again, we watched all those college football playoff games, both of them so far, and I think that UW could have played with or beaten any of those teams we saw. Give us fucking TCU. Are you kidding me? You think UW couldn't beat TCU on a neutral site? 
They certainly could. I, I think they could. I, They're three-point favorites. I don't know if I would go that far. Uh, one of the things the Huskies certainly benefited from this in this game was the opt-out from Texas, both Bijan Robinson and Rashawn Johnson at running back. They're 51 rushing yards, the second fewest this season, ahead of only their loss to TCU by a 17-10 final. So... That that was a factor in UW forcing Quinn Ewers to throw the ball as much as he did and, and having the success they did defensively. Uh, anything else on this game? So let's we're going to first look ahead and then look back. Uh, as we look ahead, starting with Richard Newton, who served as the backup in the Alamo Bowl with Cam Davis sidelined due to injuries, had 11 carries for 44 yards, announced afterwards he'll return for his sixth season as will tight end Devin Culp. That leaves Roma Dunce is the only player we're still waiting to hear from. He said he, he afterwards he knew what he was going to do, but has not yet made that public. I would never, ever, ever encourage a college athlete to stay in college. Things are a little bit different with NIL post NIL. Yeah. Like I, I, it's not quite the same. But come on, Rome! Like everyone else is coming <laughs> back, dog. We. I just wish that we could start next season right now. Like, it's, or, it's or like with you said this, team. it's the 2012 Seahawks offseason after that season. If you could just, and sometimes that goes sideways, right? Well, often it goes sideways. But we've, we've seen it with teams that weren't actually that good. We've seen it with quarterbacks that weren't actually that good. Look, all love and respect to Keith Price and Jake Browning and Jake Locker. Michael Penix Jr., Michael Penix Jr. and this offense is not comparable to those quarterbacks. I mean, and and what I would say is there wasn't necessarily the same excitement about UW in 2017 <clears throat> because the the announcements weren't everyone's coming back. The announcements were John Ross is going to the NFL, Dante yes. Pettis is out of eligibility, he's going to the NFL. Uh, it was not not the same offense. This team is I, I mean I'm impressed with Keelan DeBoer and Ryan Grubb and everybody involved. The, the thing it has made me think of, and look again, as you said, it's a different era, and I think he, all of these players made these decisions out of what's best for them, not the uh, interest of the program. It really reminded me of call it, playing the college football game, video game, where you were able to like convince players Easily. to not stay yeah. in the yes. draft. <laughs> that's, that's what it made me think of. But those coaches, the co-defensive coordinators, like they've managed to have this team commit to being together for one more year and bring in a lot of talent and not lose that much talent like i mean there's certainly going to still be some more players who are going to eventually transfer just from a scholarship perspective which is you know uh you hope that those players are doing that by by their choice and that it's not a case of over recruiting but a number of players still have to we thought the most exciting off season this year would be the mariners off season <laughs> We were wildly wrong about that one. Are we not even talking about the John the the clearly veiled comments that from Jerry Depoto saying that John Stanton is not letting him spend? I, I did not see those comments actually. Uh, they're they're out there. All right, well we'll put we, that on the rundown for next week. I doubt they're going to have spent by then. We don't need to. I I it's sort of coming back to what we talked about about Jerry Depoto. It's like Jerry Depoto would probably love to sign one with all think. of the most expensive paid free agent signings. <clears throat> uh, this is the off season. It's funny that the off season literally happened before the season. It, it, but like that is how it works. the team that we're going to go, the we're going to go into next year being like, 
wow, it feels like a blip that off season. Like for the Mariners, I'm just like, I don't want to think about the fucking Mariners for two months. You know, like it, it's, it hasn't been as fun of an off season as we thought it would be. It's been a little bit frustrating. For the Huskies, we're going to beat that fucking spring game if we can. You know what I mean? Like, the excitement that we're going to have for UW football heading into this year, we are going to be paying so much more attention than we've ever paid. And this is going to be, they will be ranked mark, mark, top eight, eight in the country. They I are going to be. I think that might be conservative. I mean, they're going to finish the season top eight, and I think they'll probably be ranked higher when you look at, you know, the the players that other programs are losing to the NFL. They, they could be a top five team in the country. I think that's quite plausible. Wow. Uh, God, you, that kind of preseason excitement. I don't, we don't feel comfortable with that. That's what I've said. Especially with Caleb Williams also in the Pac-12. Bonix coming back. I mean, yeah. Like, there's not going to be the degree of excitement for those schools. Uh, Oregon is coming off of a Holiday Bowl win. Uh, not, not as dominant in that one as the Huskies were against t- Texas. Uh, yeah, it's... It's going to be a brutal, brutal conference next year uh, in the last year of the Pac-12. Also, Kevin Warren is leaving. Just stay, USC. I'm sorry. You know it was stupid. Just get more money from the Pac-12. We'll see how much. I don't know how much money, more money there is to get. But the uh, It's just the, dumb. We know it's fucking stupid. They made a bad decision. The latest woof from Kalen DeBoer coming earlier this week as the Huskies adding running back Dylan Johnson as a transfer from Mississippi State where he split time the last three seasons playing I for surprised to see another running Mike back. Leach. I mean, yes, we, we've already seen them add uh, uh, Daniel Ngata, yeah. I believe was the transfer from Arizona State. So that's a position where I think you'd expect to see some transfers. Richard Newton said he's coming back. Cam Davis, you would expect to come back. Some other of the players lower on the depth chart, uh, you might see look elsewhere for more playing time. But Johnson has averaged around 5.5 yards per carry the past two seasons. Naturally was a big receiving threat in the air raid offense with 149 catches in three seasons, including 70, 65 as a second-year freshman in 2021. Johnson has two years of eligibility remaining. It was pretty exciting. So it's going to be an interesting competition for that starting job with the graduation of Wayne Talapapa. And I wanted to take a moment. We didn't talk about this before senior day, partially because it was just kind of unclear about who might be sticking around at that point. But the Husky seniors were saying farewell to are the 12 players who had exhausted their eligibility as of this season, starting with Jackson Kirkland, who arrived in 2017. A couple of players did three. I think three of them did. So you think back to... They came here the year after UW played in the college football playoff, played three years under Chris Peterson. That's how long ago this class came here. It started from 2018 through 2022, including Jackson Kirkland starting the 2018 Rose Bowl and the Alamo Bowl, bookending his uh, career. And an awesome career from Jackson Kirkland. Without question. Should be playing in the NFL. Hope so. Peyton Henry, also a five-year starter who finished as UW's all-time leading scorer, <clears throat> hit game-winning field goals this year against both Oregon State Monster. and Oregon. Monster. Incredible career. I, I, you just saying all these, like all these players are coming back. Every team loses players every year. Like, right, like every other school is going to lose players, right? USC is losing first round picks, yes. right? I will still look at every single one of these players, Katie style, and be like, we are doomed oh, next mean, the, year. The offensive line is a little concerning. That, that is the biggest concern. But I'll even be like, without Peyton Henry, how is this team going to be good next year? That, which is, I think they, they have be, a they kicker on the roster. Yeah, the also Gabe Gross, receiving votes. <laughs> <laughs> good point 
good point. I, I believe that 100%. Uh, but on the offensive line, they, in addition to Kirkland, uh, that must not be his name. Uh, in addition to Kirkland, they lose Henry Bainivalu, who was a three-year starter at right guard, and Corey Luciano, who won the starting center job this season. So three starters uh, heading off. Italian? I don't think so, but I'm not sure. Maybe. We one, can of the fine, one of the finest Italian players on the team. Safety Alex Cook was a three-year starter earning all Pac-12. Second team honors this season was kind of the, the lone constant in the secondary with all the injuries that the Huskies had there this season. Uh, Edge Jeremiah Martin broke out as a senior, recording eight and a half sacks after just one during his <laughs> previous four seasons, including his first three at Texas A&M before transferring to UW. Talapapa led the team with 887 rushing yards, had 11 touchdowns during his lone season at UW, uh, really solidified the running game as the starter. And fellow transfers Jordan Perryman, Cam Bright, Chris Mall all played key roles on defense during their lone season with the Huskies. And then walk-on wide receiver Brennan Holmes and backup punter Kevin Ryan round out this group of 12 seniors. I, I have looked up Corey Luciano. He's as Italian as goddamn Vesuvius. <laughs> <laughs> You're just basing this on, have you, have, on. Do you have any family data here? No. Okay. That's an OKG, right? <laughs> That's our kind of Italian, right there. All, all huskies, to be clear, are are OKGs. All huskies are OKGs. Uh, Greedy Gross, the kicker that who handled kickoffs this season for the Huskies, and presumably has the inside track to. Uh, handling place kicks this season. Uh, last note on the Huskies, congrats to UW wide receiver coach Jamarcus Shepard, who was chosen <clears throat> wide receiver coach of the year by football. Sco- Scoop is voted on by former winners of that. You know about that offensive end. lineman too Mateo, right there. Mateo Mele? I Mateo. don't. I, I, I'm unclear on that one. I'm, I'm a little more skeptical on the Italian nature, his Italian background. Uh, an easy choice there. The wide receivers for this team. From you know, Sal Point Catholic in Tucson. You're telling me this man is an Italian? Come on. We'll have to investigate further. We'll do further research. Keely, come over here and investigate. <laughs> uh, there's a player who went to a Catholic high school in Arizona named Matteo Mele. You have to tell me if he's Italian. I, I, I feel like there's... She would wager yes. It's not a not an Italian name I'm familiar with, I will say that. Matteo? No, Mele. M-E-L-E? Look at him. <laughs> tell me, tell me he's not Italian. Look at this one. Like a yeah, I, uh, he's like motherfucking Caesar. <laughs> oh boy. So, anyways, uh, Jamarcus Shepard did did great work <laughs> coming and joining the Huskies late, and you know, getting great play out of their wide receivers this season across the board. So uh, big things, I think, in store for Jamarcus Shepard. Monster. I mean, look. Are you looking up Miller, whether Miller is a <laughs> no, no, no. city in Italy? In the only way we know how to. We, we have to be nostalgic for things as they're happening. And we better appreciate next year because it, it, it's the last year we're getting at this. All of these coaches, all of these players, right? You talk about Jamarcus Shepard. There's talking about where you can jump to for other jobs. There's a lot of jobs that are out there. And this is about to be a coaching staff that if things go as well as we think they can go next year is going to be 
is going to be ransacked by other schools throughout the country. Uh, <clears throat> so I was going to say some sort of Roman reference if I knew anything about history. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Rome wasn't built in a day, but the Huskies, Huskies uh, under Kieran DeBoer built in an off season, I guess. But uh, it was, there, was, there was talent here. No, I mean, yes. You, you called this last year in the bold predictions. Your bold prediction was technically wrong because you said the Huskies would easily win the Pac-12 North and they tied with Oregon, but your, your sentiment was not wrong. Are they didn't we, tie with Oregon in the Pac-12 North. We beat Oregon. Well, but in the in the conference standings, they tied with Oregon. The tiebreaker is, we went into fucking Eugene, but Oregon. Again, you can't easily win if you win on a tiebreaker. It seems pretty easy to me. I don't that easy. Win was not easy, <laughs> as it turns out. God, we have to play freaking Oregon again next year. But uh, at Husky Stadium, which will be fun. That is, I I I will boldly predict right now. Who knows where, what the schedule will be like. We're probably going to play them later in the season. You're thinking game day? Oh, wow. Was that, that wasn't what you were thinking. That would be pretty fun. I, I was just going to say, I think that's going to be the craziest college football game that we will have ever attended. That might be the best Oregon and UW are potentially at the same time in, in a long time. UW-USC also stands to be a particularly interesting game <laughs> given it's the last between those two teams' conference rivals. Here? No, or that's in L.A. Remember in L.A. We, I have already vowed to attend that game. Are we I'm going? Still, is I'm that still, on the schedule? Do they have the schedule? No, they didn't, the schedule is not out. I'm what also wondering whether, we should, whether I should try to go to the Michigan State game. Mm, no. It's not quite the atmosphere of Michigan State, <clears> but we have plenty of time to think about that in the long UW offseason so let's talk instead about the NFL, the Seattle football team that continues playing the Sea Dragons. Also, continue are are going to play at some point before the UW season. Uh, I don't know if you saw they they drafted Josh Gordon. Really? Yeah. So oh, that's we cool. We can see him back in Seattle. But the Seattle Seahawks. That doesn't mean he's playing in Seattle. Well, yes. Uh, the Seattle Seahawks getting a twenty-three to six win Sunday against the New York Jets in a game they needed to maintain their playoff hopes. And you and I were talking before this game as you were driving to it, and you were like, wouldn't it be nice to just see, you know, a comfortable victory for the Seahawks for the first time in a while? That's kind of what this was. It's a little wild. Uh, I think you would have gone into this game anticipating. I don't I, I mean, there was you said 50-50. I said 45% chance of victory on both of these Seattle football games last week. We this. might have gotten a little nervous about Mike White. I it's I mean he had played really well. It, it actually makes me feel much better about this performance. Frankly, the fact that it was against Mike White. You would have gone into this game saying to yourself, we we did that Mike White was going to pick apart this Seahawks defense. And it's not really what we saw. You can kind of explain away every single one of the games that the Seahawks have played as like, well, okay, that makes sense because of this or like the Panthers don't they don't look like a bad team right getting run on by the Panthers does not seem like the Panthers don't look like a bad team i agree the thing that's hard to explain away is the fact that this was you the Seahawks first home victory since october <sighs> they did not win a home game in either november or december and could make the playoffs kind of kind of own the new york teams i mean we an overrated new york team we that's... mentioned this last <clears throat> week the Part of the reason we thought the schedule was so easy was that they were facing the New York teams, and then both of those teams turned out to be in playoff contention. The Giants have now clinched a playoff berth. 
Seahawks did win both of those games, though. We were wrong about those two games individually. That's true. <laughs> we were very wrong about the Seahawks against the NFC South. But the Seahawks win probability in this one reached 90% with six minutes left, according to RBSDM.com. In the th- I'm sorry, left in the third quarter. There was, there was and never a, dropped below there. It, it was dry out. It was sunny. Rain Wilson raised the 12th man flag. The only rain we saw on Sunday. <laughs> there we go. Uh, there was a very good feeling in the crowd in a way that Sometimes, I mean, I've described this. I, I, Look, it wasn't a good crowd for the Seahawks by any means. We were the only people cheering. But I think there was just a positive feeling about the Seahawks in a way that you could have... There was there was not a, a Jet fan in sight, really. Really? It, it was... The Jets and the Giants, neither of them traveled particularly well. I think the Giants traveled better than the Jets. There was maybe a couple, but it, w- it was very different than playing against the Raiders, obviously. Right. For the Niners. Or the Niners. Like, coming off of those games, it was a little bit of, like, it is a new year. It's sunny. Like, we've shed, we've shed a little bit of whatever bad feeling was around the Seahawks. And they played a very good game. And Ken Walker, I mean, we talked about it. This, I think he carried over that second half. What Were his, were his stats good in the end, advanced statistics? Uh, I have not looked at the advanced statistics necessarily on, the, on that specific <clears throat> But we but, talked about him carrying over the second half performance. But uh, the offense was good, and the passing game was not particularly good in this one. The Jets, you know, their strength in terms of pass defense did show up. You had the DK Metcalf drop on what was probably Geno Smith's best throw of the day. Uh, the Seahawks had a lot of success, though, with the, with the when run Mina game. When posted, when he, she was just like, that's a pitch and a catch or whatever, and I was like, oh, okay. Like, that's not that easy of a catch. I, I agree that, that that is, you know... the. That that far downfield is inherently somewhat difficult, but Gino did everything he could on that one to get DK a second catch on the game. And was without Tyler Lockett for most of the game. When you saw Tyler, there was a play that he made where he did like a little like in and out route. And it was like Tyler looked fast. It was as if he'd missed a week of football and gotten his chance for his body to rest for a second when at this point of the season, what? Ken Walker ended up slightly negative in terms of EPA per play. So I'm okay with that. Actually, the the Seahawks running game doing the most damage here was DJ Dallas. Oh, and DJ Dallas was monster in this game. Yes. He undoubtedly was. Uh but Ken Walker having the ripping off that run to start the game. Ending it with the touchdown. I think I called this. I boldly predict the Godwin uh Igwe- Iguabuike carry in the game. Maybe that was just to you and me. Yeah, I don't know if that was on the podcast. But the long run that Ken Walker had to start the game. Well, would... I would like to say you're welcome for not starting him in my fantasy football championship. <laughs> had he didn't I have started... that great of a fantasy game. He he had a better one than David Montgomery. <laughs> so a, a substantially better one than David Montgomery. But it was the it was the running game, and then it was really the tight ends getting very involved in the passing game, even without Will Disley. Five catches, 36 yards, and a touchdown for Colby Parkinson. Two catches for 40 yards and three targets for Noah Fant. And it has always felt it has felt to me all season like the Seahawks offense is at its best when those tight ends are very involved in the passing game. Yes. It's, which is a weird thing to say about a team that has Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf. Wow, DK and Metcalf yet, only had one catch for three yards. He only had one yards. catch for three yards, yeah. Was, did Sauce just shut, shut him down? He followed him and, and tr- definitely did a terrific job against him. But also on the other side, you have to look at Garrett Wilson. 
I, I don't know which performance is more impressive. Is it DK Metcalf, one catch for three yards on five targets? Garrett Wilson, three for 18 on 11 targets? I mean, I, we'd have to go back and look at those 11 targets and how much of them had to do with Mike White and how much of them had to do with Garrett Wilson. It was... <sighs> but it was the third best of the game of the season by defensive DVOA for the Seahawks. And maybe even better than it looked statistically because, you know, when Football Outsiders is doing DVOA... They're adjusting that based on the opponent's season-long performance. So that is including the Zach Wilson games yeah. in addition to the ones that Mike White had performed much better than this previously. Uh, well, one thing that a lot of Seahawks mentioned after the game was that this was like a classic Seahawks win in terms of the team. I believe the expression was kicking ass in all three phases. Mm-hmm. And the special teams actually was negative with the uh, the Myers field goal miss in this one. But I uh, watched that and I watched the ball sail through the uprights. And then the referees call it no good. It's just one of those things where, like, my angle in the corner of the stadium, it's really hard to tell, yeah. especially for kicks at the south end, whether they're good or not. They all look good, kind of, like, seeing the ball. On the north end, you can usually tell, but, like, the south end is really hard. But I saw that ball clearly sail through the uprights, so. I'm a little did concerned. He, because did he actually miss? Wow, I, he did. I watched it on TV. He actually missed. I'm a little concerned because I believe you actually deduced the north and south ends correctly. On that one. <laughs> I mean, you could literally see the city, right? <laughs> I know which direction the Space Needle is. <laughs> Do you? Uh, now, if I could get east and west right. Well, yeah. That's a tricky one. Uh, it was the second game this we, season. We are on the southeast side. That's correct. Yeah. It was the second game I this also can see West Seattle. <laughs> that, that is true. The second game this season with the offense better there than plus. There was a dome. I'd be fucked. <laughs> I would have no idea where I was. Wow, you finally <laughs> found the reason to dislike yeah, the kick the There it is. Spatial awareness. Uh, it was the second game of the season where the offense was better than plus 5% in DVOA and the defense was negative or good. That had previously happened this season with the win at the LA Chargers that looks far better in hindsight. Like, we were, we were a little shaky on the Chargers midseason, but they have come on <laughs> lately. And we need them to f- cap that off with a Week 18 win over the Denver Broncos to uh, maintain that draft pick. Obviously, the bad news from this game was the Jordan Brooks ACL tear that is going to end his season and you know, presumably have some ramifications for his availability in 2023 when you suffer an ACL injury this late in the regular season. How long is the recovery time for that? What is the anticipation? I, I haven't studied this closely in the NFL. I mean, I think... It's shorter than in the NBA where it's typically a 12-month injury, but I think it's at least a nine-month injury. So you're talking about like best-case scenario is maybe missing training camp and back around the start of the regular season. So this is an... I saw some people speculating that this would change how the Seahawks approach the draft or whatever, and I <clears throat> I would be very surprised if the Jordan Brooks injury... We have no idea how the Seahawks are going to approach the draft, literally at all, so... I mean, some of it depends on how they feel about Cody Barton. Like, if you felt like you needed another linebacker at that spot long-term anyway, then I think it could increase the need for that next season. But it's also a possibility you see it as we can bring in a veteran as a one-year fill-in to, you know, provide some depth there. I know that (laughs) <laughs> he's still out there. KJ is still out oh, there. Oh, no. I was talking about a different one. Oh, we'll Bobby? see this weekend. Yes. I don't think Bobby's leaving the Rams this offseason. Is don't... there any chance of the Rams just tear it down? No. Zero chance. You think they are going to run it back next year? They're just going to be like, that was a blip. Yeah. We've got Stathard healthy. 
our offensive line is healthy, which is really the most important. Oh, thing. is Andrew Worth coming unretiring? I mean, I wouldn't rule it out, but uh, you wouldn't rule out forty-four-year-old Andrew Whitworth unretiring after I a season. Rule it out. Uh, but Cody Barton slides to the middle, basically there, and is is handling the play calling duties defensively with the green <clears throat> green dotted helmet that has radio communication. And Tanner Muse, who has seen a little action this season, stepping into the lineup into that base. Uh, linebacker set. So the Seahawks with this win, with the Green Bay Packers winning, the Washington Commanders losing on Sunday, <coughs> the playoff scenario comes down to this. The Seahawks need to win, and the Detroit Lions need to win at Lambeau Field. And what we learned on Monday would be the Sunday night football game played after the Seahawks game, after the Lions know whether they are eliminated from the playoffs. And Seahawks fans were I would say perhaps big mad about this one. I it just feels like an in spite of everything, in light of everything. I 100% agree. It feels stupid to even worry about this, right? Make the playoffs, miss the playoffs, whatever. Everybody's going out there and playing football. Everybody's trying their hardest. I mean, the, and among those teams, Detroit. <clears throat> you know, Dan Campbell had said before that announcement that. You know, either way, it was a must-win for them because either they had a chance at the playoffs or they had a chance to play spoiler against one of their historic rivals. Also worth noting, Detroit with a win would go to nine and eight on the season, their first winning record since they made the playoffs. Made the playoffs in 2016. That's not a thing they take lightly in Detroit. I given the Lions' recent history, they they're going to have a very good draft pick, a pair of very good draft picks heading into the offseason. I don't see. I mean, the fact is the Lions are in a similar situation to the Seahawks, and they're going to, despite having a solid record for the season, have a very good draft pick. And also, they get Jamison Williams a full season of him. They've integrated him late in the season, so it's kind of like they had three first-round picks in a way. I mean, it's the same with us with Jamal Adams, but like the... Four first-round picks in Jamal Adams, if you factor in Jamal Adams. I... Again, if you're worried about complaining about the NFL, about the timing of this game and the lions not trying their hardest or whatever, then you're approaching it wrong. Setting that correct argument aside, I wanted to make two points here. Number one, the Vegas, which tracks these things closely, thought that this line, this change was so significant that the line moved from Packers minus four and a half to Packers minus four and a half after the announcement. Now, maybe they were already factoring in the potential of them playing on Sunday night, but I I kind of thought it was going to be the uh, it, it was going to potentially be the the Bengals Ravens game this week. So uh, I was surprised by it. The other thing worth noting here is, you know, when people talk about schedule and fairness, it's one of those things where there's so many different dimensions of what schedules are that we can't possibly consider all of them. So you sort of just pick and choose which makes your point. And so I think Packers fans would point out that if you're going to talk about the fairness of playing this game after, the Packers lost a home game this year to play in London that they lost to the Giants. The Seahawks had an extra had one less road game this year because they played Tampa Bay in Munich is the road team in that game. So the Seahawks got to play nine home games, seven road games. Green Bay had to play eight home games, eight road games. Yeah, it'll be frustrating if it happens and the Seahawks win and the Packers also win. I get that, but like... Nobody stopped the Seahawks from just beating the Panthers or the Raiders or the Buccaneers or the Saints. 
or the 49ers multiple times. Like, they just could have won those games and made this mood. And they didn't. That's the reality of the situation. The other thing is they, they have to beat the Los Angeles Rams on Sunday for yes. this to matter. And that's not a layup. <clears throat> it's a likely scenario, but it's not a layup. Let's talk a little about the Rams, who, since we last saw them, the Seahawks winning 27-23 uh, to drop the Rams to 3-9. and nine. The fall, I think it was two days later, they claimed Baker Mayfield <clears throat> off waivers. Days later, Mayfield entered on the second drive of Thursday Night Football against the Raiders and led the Rams to a 17-16 comeback in that game, a pretty thrilling one. Last two weeks have been a little hard to understand, make sense of. The Rams followed a dominant 51-14 win over the Broncos on Christmas Day, their best of the season by DVOA, with a meek 31-10 loss to their roommates at SoFi Stadium, the Chargers, last Sunday. Uh, starting in Week 13, if you look in that period, Baker ranks 18th of the 29 quarterbacks with at least 100 plays in EPA plus CPOE composite on rbsdm.com, one spot behind Geno Smith in that span. He's been slightly above average in EPA per play, but still negative by CPOE, despite the fact that he's completing 67% of his passes with the Rams, which would easily be the highest of his career uh, after being one of the league's worst quarterbacks in Carolina before being released. Uh, those are going for just 10.2 yards per completion, easily a career low for Mayfield. Also taking sacks at a career high rate behind the embattled Rams offensive line, which has enjoyed a bit more consistency lately as four of the five starters have been consistent the last five weeks with only one spot rotating in that span. Mayfield hasn't had the benefit of any of the team's top three wide receivers by targets. Cooper Cup, Allen, at least the last two weeks, Cooper Cup, Allen Robinson, and Ben Skoranek all on IR out for the season. Ted and Tyler Higby has been the top healthy receiving threat, had nine catches for in 11 targets for 94 yards, two touchdowns against Denver before being held to three catches on four targets for 11 yards last week. Uh, Van Jefferson had three catches for 77 yards against the Chargers in as many targets, accounting for nearly 60% of Mayfield's 132 <coughs> yards in that game. After appearing on the outs early in the season, there was a lot of trade talk. Cam Akers, now the Rams clear running back one, has rushed for 241 yards the last two weeks on just 42 carries. So similar to Ken Walker, the third getting going lately. Same thing with Cam Akers for the Rams. The interesting thing is that a defense that still features stars, Jalen Rapp, Judy, ah, Jalen Ramsey and Bobby Wagner got ran over by the Chargers, allowing a season-high 192 yards on the ground in that one. Aaron Donald and Ashawn Robinson have been out for weeks, and old friend Greg Gaines limited to 14 snaps last week by a shoulder injury. The defense also did not force a turnover after an incredible run of at least two in each of the previous five games, including four against the Broncos, uh, when we saw Bobby Wagner pick off Russell Wilson, which was... Uh, an incredibly confusing thing to understand how to feel about it from the Seahawks' <laughs> standpoint, aside from the draft pick. Wigner has a pair of interceptions this season, as well as a career-high six sacks. And Michael Hoyt has made some big plays this season since uh, lately he had sacked a Geno twice, Russell Wilson one and a half times. No other sacks this season. And defensive looked lineman, good in that sack against Gino. He, he, one of those. I mean, he looked like a, a future star against the Seahawks. Defensive lineman Lorel Murchison had two sacks in that game against Denver. The first two of his career uh, did not have any on Sunday. So, look, this is a team that still has some pieces, certainly some star pieces. And, you know, when, when Baker Mayfield is kind of clicking and they're using a lot of play action off that running game, they can still be a threat. 
I, I think that Al Woods' return was one that really, really mattered for the Seahawks, though. Definitely helped there. And I think we really underrated just how important Al Woods is for this defense. And being without him during a number, for a number of games against teams that were able to run the ball against the Seahawks, it was different for the Jets, right? I mean, Mike White didn't play well, but them not being he able was, to... He was in difficult situations as well. Just not being able to run the ball consistently. Like, Al Woods just... That's what he does. He stops the run. He takes up space. And I I don't know if I see with Big Al Woods back and in there. I mean, you look at the interior of that Seahawks D-line, Shelby Harris and Al Woods. They're a much harder team to run against than they were a couple of weeks ago. Now, granted, he was part of that Carolina game, played a similar percentage of snaps as he did on Sunday. Didn't he go out during that I game? I think he went out during it, but like I said, played 20 snaps, th- then 19 snaps I think snaps he was out week. in the second half when they started really running. Like, when they put it all together, Al Woods was out, and Shelby Harris was out. So That was the game Shelby missed due to illness? I thought he might have missed the next game due to illness, but it might have been... I think they were both out during that one. They matter a lot. This team is based upon the run defense revolves around Big Al Woods. He's he's the guy. Harris Harris did miss the Carolina game. Yeah, and then Al Woods went out during the game. So things changed. We saw it in in real time. Things changed, and you could see it against the Jets that Big Al Woods matters. Maybe more so than almost anybody on the Seahawks defense. Uh, I feel better about their ability to stop the run, obviously, with him there. So... It's going to be an ugly game. We've seen these games at the end of the year for the Seahawks. I just think... Well, often against the Rams. In well, situations. often against the Cardinals. But no, I mean, like week 18, I think. The Cardinals, it's like right, like late December. The Rams have often been the first weekend. I mean, this is not technically the first game in January, but the first weekend of January. I think back to, what was it, 2000... I mean, there was the year that they had to play the game to decide the NFC West when both teams were... Right, six and nine. <laughs> oh no, no. Well, yes, yes. Then Pete Carroll's first season back in 2010. But I'm thinking like 2013, 2014 range, or 2012 maybe too. I think there have been a lot of Seahawks Rams season finales. I think this is a Rams team. This is a Seahawks team that uh, is healthier, more talented. If Tyler Lockett is able to play and be healthy, if Ryan Neal is able to play, the sec- they're just a better team. Ultimately, with given all the injuries, and they have a lot more to play for here. I think it'll be similar to that Jets game in the way that the Seahawks came out, they scored early, they took the lead, they played defense, they got a few stops, and they just they they hung on, you know? And I think that's what's going to happen in this one. Yeah, the Seahawks hosted the Rams at uh, in week 17, the last week of the regular season, 2012, 2013, and 2014. And only one of those games was a lopsided win, although it could be similar to 2014 when they uh, clinched the number one seed in the NFC. Yeah, it was just a 20 like a to six win. It was totally a, forgotten game. It was just yeah. like uh, it was. It was probably yeah. It was six nothing Rams at halftime. Seahawks outscored them twenty nothing in the second half. And it was just like uh, okay, let's go. Let's go do enough. Right. What year was that? That was 2014. So not a number one seed year. No, it was a number one seed year. That. It was the it was the, the Super Bowl forty nine. Okay, run. I remember that. <clears throat> so, but it was like, yeah, they'll they'll win, they'll do this. Chances of victory. Sixty seventy eight percent. 
75%. Now, I, I, we could t- we've got so long to talk about the draft, right? Look, a week from today, we may be talking with Ben Baldwin about the Seahawks year in review. We may be talking. I was kind of thinking this through. We're getting close to uh, are they back or whatever. Are we doing percentage chances that they're back? I, I think we will probably do that, yeah. Geno Smith, probably. That's going to be an interesting one. I, I mean, I can't imagine a world where Geno Smith isn't back, but it, going into a very interesting offseason for the Seahawks. But to me, after watching those two college football playoff games, it depends on who's out there. It depends on what pick the Seahawks get. If Will Anderson's out there, I think the Seahawks will have a hard time not drafting him. But ultimately, I have I have settled at the place of no matter whether Geno, assuming Geno is back next year, I still think the Seahawks need to draft a quarterback. And I have a feeling that depending on who's out there, depending and maybe they just they love Will Anderson, they love Jalen Carter. If those two players aren't there, then they'll draft a quarterback. But I feel like. I feel like the Seahawks front office is in a similar place. I think they, they are thinking about this. Pete Carroll's trying to win forever. I think they are thinking about this as they need to fix the defense, but also Pete Carroll's not looking at the next generation of winning. Pete Carroll's looking at the next 15 years of winning or whatever. He's not trying to win for the next five years. And I do think there is a bit of a, a long-term perspective that maybe we're underrating with the Seahawks. That's why they had the offseason they had last year. It wasn't to win this year. And it wasn't to win next year. It wasn't to win around Geno Smith. It was Pete Carroll's going to be here forever. I mean, you look back at this is obviously an earlier stage in his career, but the willingness to trade away, potentially trade away Russell Wilson if they had gotten a number one pick and been able to draft a quarterback at various points, you know, around his contract extensions. Like, yeah, that was going to be a They may be playing against one of those quarterbacks. not me they are going to be playing against one of those quarterbacks this week uh, i was i was actually reviewing randomly the instagram stories from the pelton cast live for the draft last year and us talking about baker mayfield as a possible seahawks quarterback him starting if if you would have boldly predicted that baker mayfield will start in the week 18 seahawks rams (laughs) game would have been a pretty incredible bold prediction uh i i don't know i I don't know how to feel about it yet. I want to study the the draft history more and then learn obviously much more about the players in this year's draft, but it was it was an impressive performance by CJ Stroud to say the least. And Bryce Young. I'm convinced that Bryce Young is going number 1. I think that is I think that is close to done. So the Broncos assured a top 5 pick. We know that pick will be in the top 5 even if they win and everything else kind of goes and the other teams in the mix lose because of the fact that the Rams are the only team right now at 5-11 and 11 and already ha- hold that head-to-head tiebreaker the wrong direction, having won on Christmas Day. So we don't Denver. have to cheer for the Rams this weekend? <laughs> we Good do news. not have to cheer for the Rams this weekend. No. We, we should cheer for the Indianapolis Colts. Are they playing the Bears? No. Who are the Bears playing? Uh, the, Bears, uh, the Bears are playing... The Minnesota Vikings. Oh, God. They're probably favorites. <laughs> Bears minus eight. The Colts are playing Houston. They're hosting Houston on Sunday with presumably... See, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't heard anything about Matt Ryan getting back into the mix. Nick Foles Has Houston out for that clinched game. the number one seed? Uh, Houston. 
No, if Houston wins in Chicago, pick, not the number one seed. I take that back. Yes, if Houston wins and Chicago loses this week, the the Bears would pick number one. That is an all time and take-a-thon. the Bears still like I was only paying attention to this for fa- fantasy purposes. Like even after Justin Fields left the game on Sunday, he was still in there on the final drive when they were trailing. What was the score here? Wait, who was still in? You said Justin Fields for Chicago. You said after he left the game. He like left the game. Left briefly. and came back. Yeah. And they still played him. He, they, they were down 41 to 10. And he played until like the <laughs> final two minutes of the fourth quarter, which was truly shocking for a team that has long been eliminated from the playoffs. If, if you're somebody who wants the Seahawks to take a quarterback, you should be happy that the Bears are there because obviously they're not going to take a quarterback. Yes. Uh, but if you're somebody who would like the Seahawks to, to draft Will Anderson, so go I, bears again, go bears. And I, well, I think just, yes, either way you still want to be as high up as possible. So go bears and go Colts this weekend and go chargers. But, uh, again, all of that certainly pales in comparison to reiterating our thoughts and, and prayers being with Damar Hamlin and, uh, hoping for a full recovery for him on that note. Thanks for listening. Thanks.